This episode features songs from the anthology of interplanetary folk music by Craig Leon. Learn more at craigleon.com. And from the album Tactile Galactics by Secret Circuit. Available at secretcircuit.bandcamp.com. Links and more on our website, ephemeral.show. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Have you ever seen something you couldn't explain? An encounter you would hesitate to recount for fear of not being believed? Or on the other hand, has anyone ever told you a tale so far outside your conception of reality that you aren't sure what to make of it? Sorting out these threads is what compels host Toby Ball in the podcast, Strange Arrivals. I had this idea that I wanted to do something about skepticism and belief, but how do you access that in a way that people are going to find interesting? Unlike many other documentary series, which center on proving or disproving extraordinary claims, Strange Arrivals goes deep into the historical and social context around extraterrestrial accounts by weaving together eyewitness testimony, expert interviews, and rare archival tape. For the last two years, I've been lucky enough to work with Toby on producing Strange Arrivals, the second season of which concludes tomorrow, August 3rd. In light of that occasion, we wanted to take the opportunity to hear more about his approach to the show, the motivation behind it, and how he's learned to think about lights in the sky. When did you become interested in UFOs? I think like a lot of people, it was probably when I was seven or eight. Well, it was real, I swear. The culture was fairly infused with paranormal stuff in the 70s. You could get gold key UFO comic books. There was a bunch of UFO movies, you know, Close Encounters. Play the five tones. Star Wars came out, I guess, when I was 10. There was one, and I'm, I barely remember anything other than the title and the fact that I loved it so much, called The Mysterious Monsters. The Mysterious Monsters, a shocking look into man's encounters with the unknown. There was a show called Project UFO, which began with this cryptic opening. Ezekiel saw the wheel. This is the wheel he said he saw. These are unidentified flying objects that people say they are seeing now. I don't know if it's really filtered down to our current cultural moment, but Chariots of the Gods came out around then. Chariots of the Gods explores Von Däniken's controversial and explosive theory that beings from other galaxies visited Earth in ancient times. The Six Million Dollar Man, which was probably my favorite show, had UFO stuff in it all the time. As a matter of fact, if I'm remembering correctly, Bigfoot was an android that came out of a flying saucer. The Sasquatch and I are going back up to California. Also, growing up, we had a family friend who we'd see every Christmas, and he was the editor for the Skeptical Inquirer magazine. As sort of an inquisitive 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old, got to pick his brain about his take on UFOs. There's this idea that the modern UFO era 
in quotes, began in 1947. The first of two record air crashes. Prior to that, there had been sort of these airship sightings in the late 1800s. These pictures made from a Pathé news plane show the world's largest airship heading for Lakehurst, New Jersey. In World War II, there was famously these sightings of Foo Fighters. Position last reported, 10 miles out to see all plans in. Fighter pilots would see these craft that were moving in ways that they weren't expecting. Send up every plane you've got and search for it. But if you put all that aside, in 1947, this guy Kenneth Arnold saw a bunch of disks right around Mount Rainier. He described them as moving like saucers, like if you skipped a saucer. That got kind of picked up and turned into flying saucers, and then suddenly things started looking like saucers. Then it was less than a month later that the whole Roswell story happened. Although Roswell goes underground and isn't this incident in people's minds until it resurfaces in the 80s. We'll get back to Roswell later. But after that, there was this weird period where there was a lot of sightings. I think a lot of them today, people would not misidentify as UFOs. But back then, people just weren't looking to the skies that much looking for things. I mean, there weren't any satellites up, many fewer airplanes. There's actually this really interesting story that I heard about how at the end of World War II, one of the Japanese generals sent up these incendiary devices in balloons. The idea was that these balloons were going to float over to the U.S. and then drop these devices. That was enough of an issue that in the Pacific Northwest, people were told, like, look up for your own safety, see if there's any of these weird balloons up there. So there was this rash of sightings in the Pacific Northwest because people were looking to the skies for the first time, looking out for stuff. And then the other kind of weird thing that happens early on, like in the 50s, is that there's this group of quote-unquote contactees, which are these men who say they have seen a UFO come down and have actually made contact with the aliens who come out of the UFO. Like this one guy, George Adamski. Amateur astronomer George Adamski saw a saucer land. He thought it was this guy from Venus who came. And he met the pilot of Anusia. And the guy's got like flowing golden locks, wearing like loose white clothes. This is George's description. Five foot seven to eight inches, 135 pounds, quite delicate hands. Long hair, waving, resting on his shoulders, very sharp eyes, kind of a, a halfway smile, and uh, put his hand out to shake. And he's preaching about how people from other planets are watching the Earth, and they're really worried about atomic weapons, and they're worried that we're all going to destroy ourselves. They came down to talk us down and preach peace, and like he's going to be the guy who brings it to the world. And there's a few people who are like this. I 
I don't know how many people actually believe them, other than thinking it was an interesting way of getting across a pacifist message. One of the interesting things about Betty and Barney Hill was that you kind of go from this didn't literally happen type of encounters to a story where it does seem like it could have happened. Examining the strange case of Betty and Barney Hill was the genesis of Strange Arrivals. At the time, I was working at the University of New Hampshire, and they have the Betty and Barney Hill archives there. I thought, you know, I've got this treasure trove of materials, and that might be an interesting way of getting into some of these other ideas. Regardless of what you believe about the truth or delusion about what happened to them that night, as opposed to other alien encounter stories that haven't stuck in the culture, this one did. And then subsequent generations of alien abduction stories built on it, but didn't really change the very, very basic aspect. There's just something about that story that would have influence long beyond the time that they told it, and even after they had both passed. Betty and Barney Hill, who are now on the telephone in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Hello, which one have I got on the line, or have I got your phone? You have us both on. Oh, how wonderful. Hello, that's you, Barney? Yes, that's correct. And Betty, are you there? Yes, I'm here. They were a mixed-race couple. Barney was black, Betty was white. They live in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. They're very active in the civil rights movement in New Hampshire. She was a social worker for the state, and he worked at the uh, post office in South Boston. He was a vet, and I believe was close enough to a grenade that it blew his teeth out, and he had false teeth. That comes out later in the story. In September of 1961, they decide to go on a brief vacation. They drive west, go to Niagara Falls, cross over into Canada, spend the night outside of Toronto. They go to Montreal, and the idea was that they were going to spend the night there, but they don't. There's different ideas about why this might be. There's talk about how they got lost in Montreal and they didn't speak French. They were trying to get directions and they couldn't understand what people were telling them. And they got stressed out and just left. Also, there was a tropical storm that was moving up the coast and Portsmouth is right on the ocean. So they may have been trying to get home before that hit. They may have just run out of money. But regardless of what the reason was, they start heading back. They cross over from Canada into northern New Hampshire, and they stop to have a snack at this diner in this place called Colebrook. They eat. As they're leaving, they see it's around 10 o'clock at night. They start driving south. They get into the White Mountains, and they see that there's this light that seems to be following them. They stop at a turnoff, and they get out, and they look at it. Barney thinks that maybe it's a plane, but they can't hear any noise. They get back in the car, but with this sense that something up in the sky is following them. They drive through this area called Franconia Notch. I've driven through it many times. It's this really beautiful road, but on either side are these very steep mountains. So it feels fairly claustrophobic. 
there used to be this tourist stop called the Old Man in the Mountain, which was this natural cliff face that, from a certain angle, looked like the profile of like some old man. One of nature's most awe-inspiring works is this giant profile of the Old Man of the Mountain, sculptured out of the granite cliffs at Franconia Notch. It was like a symbol of New Hampshire, and it's on all the New Hampshire interstate signs. I believe it's on my license plate. In 2003, this natural landform collapsed. So anyway, they stop right by the old man in the mountain, and they see an actual craft. And that's the point at which, you know, it gets real. They get back in the car, start heading further south. They kind of get out of Franconia Notch into more open area. Over their car, they hear this craft. They pull over, and the craft goes off into this field. Barney gets out, and he's got binoculars. He looked like the kind of man who would have binoculars handy in his car. (laughs) He's looking up, and he sees beings inside the craft looking back at him. I think you indicated earlier that they were pretty human-looking. Yes, and uh, you have to consider that looking uh, at anyone in a window 10 stories up with a binocular, the only thing you can discern is that they look human and nothing grotesque about this. Mm -hmm. They jump back into the car, take off down the highway. They feel these kind of buzzes in the car. A very subtle-type vibration. And it was beep, 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 beep. And they realize they're like 30 miles down the road with no memory of driving it. They go into Concord, trying to find a cop to tell about what happened, get a cup of coffee, don't find either, drive the rest of the way back, arriving at about 5 in the morning. But they were expecting to show up around 3, based on when they'd gone through Colebrook. So there's a couple of missing hours. And that was that. But after a few days at home, Betty began to have a recurring series of dreams. Ten nights after this happened, I had a series of dreams. Betty had a series of dreams. For five nights. That lasted for about five days. Each dream was different. Betty dreams about being abducted, being brought on a UFO, and being examined by aliens. They're extremely vivid. She talks to a bunch of people about them, including her sister. They were not dreamed in this way. Who's like, wow, maybe those aren't dreams. Maybe you're just remembering what happened during those two hours. It so happened that a few years later, Barney was recommended a new doctor. Uh, there was distress. I developed an ulcer. and That's all gone now. Yes. Thank, Thank you. goodness. Good. He was seeing a psychiatrist in Exeter. And Barney was going in talking about his early childhood and his mother and his father and all that. The psychiatrist suggested that he might benefit from some hypnotherapy. Deeper and deeper, deeper sleep. There was a guy down in Boston named Benjamin Simon. Welcome. Dr. Simon to our program. Dr. Simon? Yes. Good morning. Thank you very much for staying up this late to come on the air with us. Mm-hmm. He was extremely respected. My senses sort of at the top of the field at the time. was doing a lot of work with soldiers who were returning from Korea and probably from World War II as well with what we would call now PTSD. 
I think there was probably a sense that Barney's war experience, especially being that close to death with the grenade incident, was another reason to recommend this guy, Benjamin Simon. The name is Dr. Benjamin Simon. He's a psychiatrist in the Boston area. And he was called on to uh, interview, psychoanalyze, and hypnotize Barney Hill. They go down to Boston for a series of hypnosis sessions. Well, it was in, in late uh, 63, quite near Christmas time. And uh, I kept an appointment which my secretary had made with a Mr. Barney Hill. And at first, it's just going to be Barney, but Betty gets her own hypnosis sessions, too. In our sessions with Dr. Simon, they were done individually. And he also gave us amnesia at the end of each session so that we could not remember what had happened. Under hypnosis, the Hills separately relived the night of their encounter, and new details emerged. They tell these stories that basically go like this. After they leave where they see the UFO in the field and they're driving off, after they hear the first couple of buzzes, Barney, for no particular reason, turns off the highway onto a side road. They're driving through the woods and they come across some figures in the road. They're wondering, did somebody's car break down or what? Who the heck are these characters or what do they think they're doing? They stop and the car dies and they can't get it started again. These figures split up, go on each side of the car, and they take them out of the car. And when they started to do that... Betty starts to freak out. I, I get real scared. Barney was supposedly in a trance. He's walking and he's asleep. So I turn around and I say, Barney, wake up. Barney, why don't you wake up? They both get taken on board this UFO that's in the woods. They're brought into separate examination rooms. Barney kept his eyes closed and prayed and was just scared out of his mind. I immediately closed my eyes because what I saw was terrifying. Betty, on the other hand, is like fully engaged with what's happening. They're taking skin samples. They uh, stick a big needle into her abdomen, like a pregnancy type test. But she starts having a conversation with them. And it was very apparent that I was using words that were foreign to them. They find that Barney's teeth come out and hers don't. He said, we're very, very puzzled. Barney's teeth are removable and yours are not. Why? She's like, well, you know, when people get older, they lose their teeth. And they say, well, what's older? And she's like, old age. He said, what's age? Then he said, diet. What's diet? So I'm saying, well, that's the foods we eat. The first food she can think of is squash. So I said, squash is yellow. And they're like, what's yellow? So I look all around and there's nothing yellow. So we didn't get along too well. She's like, where are you from? And he pulled out a map. Just 3D sort of hologram type thing that they pull from a wall. He asked me, had I ever seen a map like this before? She's like, well, where are you on this map? And they say, well, can you identify where your son is? And she says, no. And they say, well, then it's not going to do you any good for us to point where we are because you don't know where you are. And they put it back. 
They show her a book that's got these weird kind of like hieroglyphics on it. I got a good look at the outside of the book and a few of the pages. I have no idea what the contents were. They actually tell her she can keep it. And then later took it back on the basis that we were not going to need this. They get led back out to their car and sent on their way. This craft lifted up and was gone. And the aliens basically make them forget what happened. So it's not until they undergo hypnosis that the story comes back out, other than through Betty's dreams. To vet testimony given under hypnosis, it's important to consider how human memory works in the first place. From talking to people who are real experts on this, it's complicated, but the way you make and recall memories, it's not like you're running back a video of what happened. Yes. You think about that story, you run it through in your head. What you're actually remembering is the last time you thought about it. Yes. There's all these associations and contaminants, and any little thing that you got wrong the last time has now become part of that memory. Yes, and I want it to be this way. And there's been all these experiments that show that it's really, really easy to influence people's memories. Even before you get to the hypnosis part of it. Now I'm going to tell you something that happened to you when you were six years old. And it's not to say that what you're saying when you're getting hypnosis is necessarily false, but you certainly can't take it as being true. Hello? How long have you been asleep? As a matter of fact, Simon was convinced that what they were recalling was Betty's dreams. The whole structure of the story was that of a dream. There are many contradictions inconsistent with they're perfectly all right in dreams. In fact, they're part of the nature of dreams. And that they just talked about it enough that that had come to be associated with that missing period of a couple of hours. He points out that she has this very rich, detailed story with conversations and things she sees and stuff she does. Barney, who didn't have those dreams, but just heard them, his story is basically, I had my freaking eyes closed the whole time. So even Simon at the time, who was sort of eliciting these quote-unquote memories, didn't think that they were literally true. The way it was put to me by this woman, Elizabeth Loftus, who is, I think, sort of the foremost expert on that stuff. Hypnosis is really good if you want to quit smoking or lose weight. But if you're trying to remember something that happened 10 years ago, it's not really all that useful. In October of 1965, Betty and Barney Hill suddenly became household names. This reporter, John Luttrell, for a now-defunct newspaper called The Boston Traveler, writes a multi-part newspaper series about this whole encounter, and then it's out there. They become the first well-known UFO abduction, and they're minor celebrities. I think everyone in the country has heard about Betty and Barney Hill. I know you've told this story time and time again, uh, and told it fascinatingly. Uh, Mr. Hill, in New Hampshire, could you give us a story about that we're talking with Betty Hill from our home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We're talking with Betty Hill, famous and first abductee. They're on the radio all the time. My name is Barney Hill. Barney was on one of those game shows. To tell the truth. Where you got three people pretending to be Barney Hill, including him. Will the real Barney Hill, please 
and up. They're kind of the face of UFO abductions. Thank you again. And all best wishes to both of you. Thank you, Betty. Thank you for having me in the Thank you, sir. One piece of the abduction story would still surface later. The map that Betty said she was shown on board the alien craft. At some point later, Betty sat down with just a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper and drew what she remembered. Just the stars she could remember. There were more stars. Some of them are dots, some of them are circles. And then she draws lines between some of them. And some of them have multiple lines. So this is her star map. And she says, this is what she saw. And then this woman named Marjorie Fish. Marjorie Fish speaking who was a public school teacher in Ohio, sees this map and thinks, I'm going to figure out where in the galaxy this map is portraying. Aspects are highly intriguing, to say the least. She gets the most recent manual of what we know about the stars. Right now I'm in the process of going through the Yale Trigonometric Parallax Catalog. And she turns her living room into this 3D star model. The model could be built and checked inside of a week. She puts black felt all around everything so there's no light coming in. And she's hanging these beads from her ceiling, doing all these really precise measurements. Pulling out all these stars in a parallax of 0 0.049 to 0.030 to create areas of the galaxy in her living room. This would take all the stars from 65 light years out to 100 light years. And then she takes pictures of these beads from these different positions. And what she's trying to do is to get a picture that she can then match up with Betty's map. It's incredibly painstaking work. And I think she did several different models. Since I've worked out all the methods, these could be followed and redone far easier than the first time. But regardless, she has a hard time of finding a match. And then the new star atlas comes out with a couple of new stars. I put in cross-references and extra data to supplement the briefing catalog. And she drops those in, and suddenly she finds a match. The main dot on the map which is where the aliens she assumes are coming from, is a place called Zeta Reticuli. It's a binary star system. One of the things that she and others found compelling was that they couldn't find a match until two stars that were not known of in 1961 are discovered. There was no way that Betty could have seen another map and drawn this star map on the paper. It, it, she had to have knowledge that, that humans didn't have at the time. The guy who's the editor for Astronomy Magazine, which is fairly new at the time, writes this very credulous article like, this is really weird. If they drew this map and it's Zeta Reticuli, maybe they did get visited by UFOs. And it gets all this blowback. I had assumed that everyone in the field wanted to know where they came from. There's this big debate about how seriously you can take it. Carl Sagan gets involved. So why would anybody take this seriously? And they eventually put out a special edition of Astronomy Magazine about the star map. Carl Sagan sues them, and they have to pull it off the shelf, and there's this whole second life to that as well. The coda on all this is that 
As time went on, we got much more precise readings on where stars were. And before she passed away, Marjorie Fish realized that her star maps had just been off. The identification of Zeta Reticuli was no longer accurate, which I think just shows like how honest her effort was. This is all that I have at this time, so sincerely, Marjorie Fish. Regardless of the validity of Marjorie's attempt, she helped cement the Hill's place in history. In addition to doing this star map stuff, Marjorie Fish worked with Betty to create a sculpture of the head and shoulders of an alien. This is Junior. Betty gave it the name Junior. Now, this is a sort of a composite. There's as much difference among them as there is between any group of people. If I say, get a mental image of an alien, you're going to come up with like a little gray guy with big eyes, almost no nose, and like a slit mouth. And that really starts at the hills. This basically shows the characteristics. The larger eyes, nose, mouth, no protruding part, no hair. If you take a look at Junior, he's sort of like a midway point between a person and the really stylized aliens you see now. Junior has been evaluated by... I don't know how many physical anthropologists, Mm -hmm. but what he looks like now, if we continue along the path of evolution, this is what we're going to look like in 25,000 years. Other hallmarks of UFO abduction lore also stem from the Hills encounter in 1962. This whole idea that you get brought up or brought into a spaceship and they do medical exams on you, their interest in reproduction, the fact that they wipe your memories clean. All that stuff starts at the hills. And though Betty and Barney's account became the template for an alien abduction narrative, future cases would continue to expand the canon. The second season of Strange Arrivals builds on the premise that the discourse around UFOs is a kind of modern folklore. Folklore isn't like a pejorative. It's just saying there's not an official accepted story. And there's a different way that you're getting this information. Then you have to have competing stories about what it actually was. An Air Force investigating team is looking into the rash of UFO reports that have taken place in southeastern Michigan. Most of the reports that we've gotten with UFOs, like official government things, one was in the early 50s, one was in the late 60s. They were both around Project Blue Book. And both of them were very dismissive of UFOs. While talking to the people, collecting their impressions of what they observed. But it seemed so slanted and so unwilling to confront things that they maybe couldn't have explained, that they weren't taken very seriously. This does not give a blanket interpretation or a blanket solution to the entire UFO phenomenon. In this gap where there's no official sanctioned understanding, there's the opportunity for all these stories to proliferate. Roswell is the clearest example of that. Roswell, New Mexico, July 8, 1947. 
it's not the main focus of the podcast, but I think most people are aware of sort of the general story, which is that debris was found on this guy's ranch near Roswell, New Mexico. There's an initial newspaper report that a crash disc had been found. The discovery on the ground of a number of objects resembling discs or saucers. The picture of the debris that was run in the paper, it's like wood and tape and foil. It seems pretty clearly that it has a human origin. The story that came back, which is probably correct, is that it was a train of weather balloons that were part of this secret project called Project Mogul. One object found on the ranch near Roswell, New Mexico, turned out to be a battered army weather balloon. So that was kind of where things stood until 1980 when a book was published. The Roswell Incident. It made this case that that was actually just a cover story. A cover-up was designed so that they could uh, say it was a mogul balloon or some kind of balloon. It was an actual flying saucer. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Alien bodies were found. Is it true that bodies of aliens have been taken to Wright Field? And an actual live alien was recovered and brought to uh, Air Force Base. Well, I guess we'll have to order in. <laughs> so suddenly you've got this new story. It conflicts with the old story, and then it just starts to balloon out of control. There's all these different strings that come from this narrative. One of the ones that we follow is that five or six years after the crash, the aliens send another ship to come and pick up the living extraterrestrial. Better late than never. At that point, there's a treaty signed with President Eisenhower. My subject tonight is science and national security. And then we send a group of astronauts to their planet, and we take some aliens onto our planet for the sort of an exchange program. It's called Project Serpo. I'm on a rotary scholarship, and I'm studying for a master's degree in sociology. So that's one example, but that's how the folklore works. You throw out these stories, some of them go by the wayside, some of them get incorporated, and the story evolves. Full-time professional paranormal investigator and skeptic, Joe Nickel, has theorized a rubric for developing UFO folklore. He calls it the Roswellian syndrome, and it's a five-step process. The first step is a UFO encounter happens, or UFO sighting happens. One. The second step is it's very quickly debunked. Two, two, two. The third step is it goes underground. Three. It doesn't disappear, although it kind of disappears from the public eye, and then undergoes these kind of myth-making processes. People's memories change. Things get mixed up with other stories becomes contextualized with other stuff that's happened. And then sometimes it's just flat out hoaxing. And then the final stage, the fifth stage, Five. it reemerges into the public consciousness in this new form that's really armored against the skeptical explanations that originally attached to it. He lists four or five different well-known examples of this happening. 
And one of them is the Rendlesham Forest incident, which is the one that we focused at at the beginning of season two of Strange Arrivals. Rendlesham Forest is in between these two Royal Air Force bases in the east coast of England, right off the shore of the North Sea. And when you hear the story of it, it seems really compelling. It takes place over three days. It starts Christmas night of 1980. This couple of U.S. Air Force airmen, Jim Penniston. My name is Jim Penniston, United States Air Force, retired. And John Burroughs. My name is John Burroughs, retired United States Air Force. See a light come down from the sky. You could see uh, glowing multicolored lights over the canopy of the forest. They call for some help to go and investigate. And they said, you need to go out to the East Gate immediately. And they approach it get right up to where the light source they think is. We get to the forest edge and I'm seeing mainly a white light coming out from behind the trees. And they duck behind a berm because it seems to be getting brighter and they don't know what's going to happen. As we came up on the top of the berm, we all hit the ground. John Burroughs says that it starts to recede and they try and chase it, but they can't catch it. Jim Penniston has a much longer detailed story which is that Burroughs gets frozen in suspended animation. Motionless, just standing there looking. Penniston himself goes up over this berm and he sees this small triangular craft. The white light disappeared completely. The only thing I could see was this black craft sitting just above the forest floor. Goes up and he like tries to push it. I tried to move it with my hands didn't budge at all, just stayed fixed. He's kind of walking around it. I paced it off at nine feet. And there's these weird hieroglyphics. The writing appeared to look like uh, Egyptian-type glyphs. They seem like they were etched in to the side of the craft. There's this one very prominent hieroglyphic. The circular one with a triangle. That he touches. I don't know how long I had my hand on that symbol maybe five, 10 seconds. And then he gets like this blast of white light. And in the white light, I could see like ones and zeros. One, zero, 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 one, 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 zero, one. All I did was just take my hand off it and I started gaining my senses. The thing then takes off. He and Burroughs chase it, they can't catch it. They go back to base. There were some people waiting for us. They report it, they get questioned. I said, I don't know what to say. At the time, there's certain things that you would never say in the Air Force because it'd be an end of your career. One of those terms is UFO, you don't use that. So I call it a craft of unknown origin. Penniston goes back home, he has a hard time sleeping. He's got all these numbers going through his head. I closed my eyes and mind's eye. I could see nothing but these ones and zeros. So he takes out a notebook. I sit down at my dining room table, flipped open to the back of the notebook when that's the only paper I had. And starts writing ones and zeros. One, zero, 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 one, 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 zero, one. Writes page after page of ones and zeros. Got to the 16th page and then they were gone. I couldn't see them no more. Gets it out of his head, goes to sleep, feels better. Second night, there's this really brief encounter that people don't know a whole lot about. What happened to Bonnie Campbell, the lieutenant that was on the second night? She disappeared from the base immediately, but she does not want any involvement. They scared the you-know-what out of her. 
The third night, there is a party on base. During that party, a more junior airman comes in and tells Chuck Halt, who's a colonel, who's the deputy base commander, these UFOs are back. So Halt pulls together this team of people to go out and investigate in the forest. And we'll go out and see what this is all about. One thing to keep in mind is that these are American servicemen tromping around in the woods in British territory, which they're not supposed to do. But regardless, they go to where the original landing site was supposed to be. There were three indentations, eight or ten feet apart. While we were there trying to figure out what to do, we saw a small glowing orange object directly out of the forest. Chuck Hall puts on night vision goggles. Looks like a pupil of an eye looking at you, Lincoln. Gets his pupils blasted by this light. It flashes so bright to the star scope that uh, it almost burns your eye. It keeps disappearing and reappearing. It just moved to the right. Yeah. the right. Strange. They start to chase it to try and find it. Let's push to the edge of the woods up there. If you want to do a lot of lights, just look carefully. Come on. They get out of the woods. They see all these lights on the horizon. Three objects to the north in the sky, multicolor objects moving together in synchronization. Really bizarre. At one point, there's a beam of light that comes down. Well, we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. So this takes place over the course of two or three hours. Nobody seemed to get excited. The command post didn't seem to care too much. So finally, we backed it in and went home. Chuck Hall reports it, and his superior's like, uh, not too sure what to do about this. Why don't you write a memo and give it to the British guy who's served in charge of the base? So I wrote the infamous memo. I saw, oh my God, there's the end of my career. The British guy who's in charge of the base is away on vacation, so Halt waits until the guy gets back and gives him this memo, giving a brief summary of what had happened. It was never supposed to go anywhere. It was supposed to be a document for him to read and then talk from. And the British base commander thought that maybe it was some kind of joke. Couldn't figure out what to do with it either. We waited and waited and waited and nothing happened. There wasn't really this big investigation. It was just they didn't really know what happened and they weren't really all that interested. I was relieved, to be very honest with you. And that was, I thought, the end of it. But later, the Halt memo and the story in general got leaked to the British tabloids, and it suddenly becomes a sensation in England. Great Britain's most incredible UFO encounter. Dubbed Britain's Roswell. Rendlesham Forest. Rendlesham Forest. Rendlesham Forest. Rendlesham Forest. Rendlesham Forest. And that was when skeptical investigators went and took a look at it and came up with a series of events that seems to explain everything that happened. The sighting on the first night began with a much brighter than normal shooting star, which seemed to descend into the trees as it dropped in the sky. The light that Penniston and Burroughs saw in the woods was actually from the Orfordness Lighthouse several miles off at the North Sea coast. The final component of the sighting that night was the blue lights in the forest that were actually from a local police car. On the night that Colonel Halt led his group into the forest, they again saw the lighthouse, and this time they also looked at it through night vision goggles. Later, when they were in the field, they mistook stars on the horizon for craft in the air. At that point, 
you have that same situation where there's two stories. You have this really compelling version of the story with Air Force personnel seeing these UFOs and they all saw them at the same time. So multiple witnesses and they're supposedly trained observers. On the other side, you have these investigators who give these different elements that seem to explain it, that sort of add up to what those people saw, but they had to have been mistaken. They had to have mistaken these different elements for actual craft. And so again, there's no settled on story here, right? It's still in dispute and the stuff is still in the tabloids. All right, here we go. The afterlife of the whole Peniston binary thing is that years and years later, they were doing a TV special. I never even thought about the binary for 30 years. Then I'm doing a film shoot for Ancient Aliens. Unearthly inspirations. Compelling ordinary people to perform extraordinary acts. And he was flipping through his notebook and I flipped it back too far, and I have all these ones and zeros written down. Found the binary code again. I knew about the ones and zeros. I didn't know it was binary code or nothing like that. I says, that's binary code? I never knew what that was. The production company took it and had it decoded. They had the binary turned into alphabet. Dash and dot together represent the letter N. And it came out with this really cryptic message Eyes of your eyes, year 8666. And then it had all these like latitude and longitude coordinates. There was seven sets of coordinates. Which according to Jim Penniston, line up with like the great pyramids of Egypt and the Nazca lines, Sedona, Arizona, and something which I had never heard of, which is called Irish Atlantis, which is apparently like a real legendary place southwest off of Ireland, out in the middle of the ocean. He's got this theory that the ship wasn't from another planet. It was us. It was humans from the future. They're not extraterrestrial. It's us doing interdimensional travel. And that the real message is something to do with the relationships between these different coordinates on Earth. The raw binary message was not the real message. The real message is in the relationship of these sites around the world. So a code within the code. I think it's in a way that's so obscure and complicated that it's really hard for anybody but somebody who's just so interested that they want to like spend a hell of a lot of time trying to figure it out to follow. It just seems way too complicated. It puzzles me so, so what? An element that further complicates these myth-making processes is the treatment of UFOs and extraterrestrials in popular media. There is this mutual influence between supposed real UFO encounters and then media depictions of UFOs. You can start with Betty and Barney Hill. This is Junior. Where people are like, where did they get that idea of what an alien would look like? People point to an episode of The Outer Limits. I cannot even understand your language and also a Twilight Zone episode back when the alien costumes were super crude. The masks are pretty ridiculous. Man, the last time I saw anything that looked like you, I'd been four days on the corn jug. But if you describe that mask and then you describe what Betty and Barney Hill saw, the descriptions would sound similar. 
larger eyes, nose, mouth, no protruding part, no hair. So maybe they got that idea subliminally from those TV shows. When you think about the major pieces of UFO media, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that was directly influenced by accounts of UFOs. Actually, the idea of Close Encounters of the Third Kind comes from this guy, Alan Hynek. When and how did you first get involved with UFOs? Quite by accident and by propensity, really. He was a scientist who was involved in Project Blue Book and, and UFO investigation. Yes, or he was an astronomer, and I just happened to be a handy astronomer. I became interested in some of the really oddball cases that clearly didn't have an astronomical explanation, and my curiosity was aroused as to how those might be explained. The thing that he's probably best known for was coming up with this system by which you can classify UFO sightings, close encounters of the first, second, and third kind. But after close encounters, there was a wave of more UFO sightings. I have to look up and I've seen this thing. E.T. the Extraterrestrial came out later. Same director, obviously. When I was much younger, I believed that we had been visited. I think the X-Files is sort of the apex of that. You ever saw the X-Files thing? taking the folklore that's developed, alien abductions and government cover-ups and hybrids and stuff, and wrapping it into a fictional narrative. My name is Fox Mulder. Since my childhood, I've been obsessed by a controversial global phenomenon. A lot of people, their main way of interacting with the UFO phenomenon was through Mulder and Scully. Scully, if what our friend from the CIA says is true, this could blow the lid off one of the biggest national security conspiracies ever. Our friend from the CIA is about as unbelievable as his story, as is everything about this case. I mean, whatever happened to trust no one, Mulder? I was such a diehard fan of that show. And then working on this with you for the last couple of years, The X-Files is like my main reference point. It's clear that the people that wrote The X-Files did their research, knew that scene, knew those stories. There's sort of this feeling like you're getting a window on a world that exists but that you don't know about. Millions of Americans believed in the uh, UFO phenomenon. Some millions less believed they'd actually seen a UFO. Some millions less believed they'd had contact but there was interest in the phenomenon. I talked to Chris Carter, who of course is a creator. So I had the uh, ideas that I'd taken from all of the accumulated science and background on alien abduction. What I would consider to be the foundation of the mythology that was based in things that anybody could read. And then Glenn Morgan, who's one of the main writers who really shaped the series. I would get a publication every Monday, it was called Science News, of findings in the world of science that week. You take that science truth and another truth, and you try to fit them together by making stuff up. So that's how you make an X-File. In fact, there's an X-Files where Deep Throat specifically says a lie is a best delivered sandwich between two truths. And I, I see that approach contemporary in other myths. Certainly once it became popular, they must have gotten deluged with information from people who wanted to talk to them about stuff. But 
They knew what the folklore around UFOs was at the time. And the alien abduction scenario that they have is basically right from David Jacobs. I really developed my sense of all things UFOs and abductions through reading Dr. John Mack. A myth of religion could evolve from this, yes. but that doesn't go against the fact that something physical, something actual is occurring. But Hopkins. Let's not try to make them overly friendly because they're not. And let's not try to make them overly malicious. They're not drinking our blood either. And David Jacobs. They may not know it. They may be just not aware of it at all. But we pretty much know the sequence of events that's going to happen to them around the world. It almost doesn't matter. Jacobs really thought it was a threat. As a matter of fact, I think he called it the threat in capitals. In other words, we know when they say A, B, C, we know D's coming. And they're not going to like D. Then they also had these ideas about paranoia and conspiracies, secret pacts, and a government that's not working in your interest. I think because I was a child of the Watergate era, I was a disbeliever in what our government was telling us and a believer that they were keeping things from us. So this fit in perfect with the UFO literature, which is all about all the reasons there are for the government to keep the truth about extraterrestrial life from the American public, that it would upend a lot of the scientific, cultural, religious institutions in society. It all seems just beyond your grasp, which I think is what makes it kind of brilliant. We've been on a whirlwind tour of close encounters this episode, but both seasons of strange arrivals lay out in detail many more stories threads, explanations, and mysteries of the UFO phenomenon. Throughout my time working on this show, the thing I'm most impressed with is just how Toby is able to keep it all straight. Modestly, he says it's just a matter of doing your homework. For these cool and weird UFO stories, whether you believe them or not, especially hearing them in the voices of the people who experience them, How do you tell it in a way that's fair to everybody who's talking to you, both the people who witnessed it and the people who think that they are mistaken in what they saw, so that neither one of those groups gets disrespected? At least for me, it's a lot like writing a book. I just do a lot of reading about what's the original story, what's the skeptical explanation, and then what question is interesting about this story. Something that's different than, is it real or isn't it real? Then it's taking a look at where does that question lead you? What do you need to know about? And figuring out who's an expert in those fields. The other part of it is just doing the archival research. For Betty and Barney Hill, I had access to the paper archives, so I could literally just flip through as much stuff as there was. The other thing with Betty and Barney Hill is they were just on a hell of a lot of radio and TV shows. So there is some remaining audio tape and some videotape of them talking about their encounter. Betty and I were returning from a vacation trip in Canada, September 19, 1961. Rendlesham's a little bit different in that other than this one audio tape that Chuck Halt made while he was out in the field. The leg is gone now. It's approximately 120 degrees from the site. Is it back again? Yes. These guys were in the Air Force. Like They weren't going on radio shows talking about this until much, much later. 
And at that point, the myth-making processes had happened. So in that case, just being able to interview them was largely the same as them being on a TV show or a radio show. All three of them were very generous with their time. It allowed me to explore some things that maybe they weren't talking about on TV shows. So by the time I actually get around to writing, I tend to have hours and hours and hours of transcripts about either the actual event, the investigation of the event, or things about those issues. Part of it's just critical thinking, not to take things at face value, but to go into these things that sound compelling, but seem well beyond what's normal, and dig and find out what's behind it. What you end up with is either you find that you don't believe it, or you find that your belief is that much stronger because you've put things to the test and they've stood up. That's really what science is about. You see something, you get a hypothesis, you test it. I've heard this, it sounds compelling, but is there an alternative? Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I think that's what it comes down to. Don't believe something because it seems cool. Approach it carefully, and if it does turn out to be real, you've got that much firmer basis for belief. This episode of Ephemeral was written and assembled by Alexander Williams and produced by Trevor Young, Max Williams, and Matt Frederick, with a very special thanks to my co-producers on Strange Arrivals, Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane. And thank you to the artists Craig Leon and Eddie Ruscha for contributing music to this episode, and also to Matt Wirth and Sammy Joconcillo for helping make it happen. Hear more from Craig Leon's Anthology of Interplanetary Folk Music at Craig Leon. .bandcamp.com and explore the music of Eddie Ruscha and Secret Circuit at secretcircuit.bandcamp.com Links to both on our website. Toby Ball is a novelist, co-host of the podcast Crime Writers On and creator of the podcast Strange Arrivals whose second season concludes tomorrow. Find it wherever you find podcasts and find us at ephemeral.show For more podcasts from MyHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.